Season 3. Welcome back to the Sean S. Show. Today is the Season 3 premiere and we have a lot of news to cover. We'll talk about this past summer in politics, primary elections, global headlines, President Biden's approval numbers, Congress, and so much more. New episodes of the Sean S. Show are back and start right now. Today, October 7th, 2022. From Ishan Media, this is the Sean S. Show, a podcast about the interesting and ever-changing world of American politics. With me, your host, Ishan. Season three. Oh my God, we did it. Welcome back, everybody, to your favorite political news podcast, The Sean S. Show. I'm so, so, so happy to be back, and I'm so happy to return to the intriguing world of American politics, and I'm looking forward to this next season. Now, when I left, I told you all that I would return eventually, and I had an idea of when I would return um, when I went on hiatus. However, things kind of changed. So when I let you guys, when I left you guys for last season for our finale for our hiatus, I had initially thought of actually coming back in August after taking maybe a four-week break. I was on vacation out of the country, so I thought that when I got back, I could get back into episode making in full swing. <laughs> well, when I got back. To, well, to say that I was exhausted is an understatement. So after giving it some thought, I decided not to have an early August launched. Then school started, because I'm still in high school, and sports activities, among other things, all started at the same time. So podcasting was not as high up the list as I would have liked. But suffice to say, things are now under control, at least I think they are. And I am back here in, on your podcast app for you. Now, with that out of the way, let's take a look at what I want to do this season. Now, as I said earlier, my plan was to start a few weeks ago. But because we're starting now, there are only five weeks left before the midterms. So we're going to try to crank out five episodes that'll be a little longer, maybe, We'll talk about the headlines, the biggest news stories, and I want to introduce something new that I'm calling Midterm Watch. In Midterm Watch, this new segment, I'll make predictions about the House and the Senate and also tell you guys about some interesting races that you should be paying attention to. And believe me, there are plenty. This show has worked very hard to make it to these midterms, and it's been the thing that we've been focused on since day one, and I want to make sure that we're the smartest and most efficient in our approach on how we cover these stories. That's why I want to have a segment dedicated to midterms, to the midterms, especially in these last few weeks in the home stretch of the midterm season so that we can talk about all the important races that are going to impact you. Now, enough about me and the show. Let's get to some content. So this past summer has been crazy in politics with all sorts of interesting, fascinating things happening all the time. And they have prompted all sorts of political discussion. 
I know that we're used to me talking about every imaginable story in politics that we have encountered, but instead of doing that, in the best interest of both time for you and time for me writing this script, (laughs) we're going to talk about the three biggest stories from the summer. But after that, I also then want to introduce the midterm segment um, because I think at least half of the episode should probably be dedicated to to midterm watch. Maybe not as much, um, maybe not as much of the episode length, but I do want to have some time dedicated to that. So that's why we're going to look at the three biggest headlines. So let's get started with those. So after we left the January sixth committee always making their way back into this show, started to really heat up. Their hearings really started to heat up in the information and evidence that they were sharing with the public from their investigation. Now, you might recall, I think maybe it was two or three episodes before the season two finale, uh, we had an entire episode dedicated to the January 6th committee's public hearings. I'd suggest you go give that a listen if you want a little more context. But when we did it, uh, when when I made an episode about it back then, There was a lot of confidence that was put into the hearings, um, at least on the side of those that wanted to see some substantive substantive evidence come out against the rioters and Donald Trump. But then they fell flat, the committee, which I said they fell flat. Um, But for my friends who may not recall January 6th, 2021, uh, let me remind you what happened that day. Basically, a large mob of mainly Trump supporters breached the U.S. Capitol building security and jeopardized the security and safety of the vice president at the time, Mike Pence, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and I believe every member of Congress present. After the riot, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives created a special committee to investigate the January 6th attacks to see where there might have been shortcomings and precautions or foul play. And after a year of investigation, the committee finally announced that they would hold some six or seven public hearings where they tried to tackle the most pertinent aspects of January 6th, from pressure being laid on Mike Pence and the Department of Justice to plots being made to use faithless electors, which which essentially means going against the state's popular vote choice for president in exchange for voters be, votes being decided by unelected electors. Um, the committee's work, admittedly, was a lot more partisan in perception, which is why I think it failed to garner the intention that it intended to get. When they started these hearings, the expectation was, oh, wow, the January 6th committee is going to be doing this huge investigation. They are going to have these huge public hearings. They're going to be terrible. But I think the way they they were played out in the media, it didn't work out in their favor. Like the perception ended up being a lot more partisan. Despite the fact that they were getting some prominent Republican support, it seemed like it was a lot more lopsided in favor of the Democratic Party. And it, the perception of it, it was not that hard to reach that, especially because the Republicans' main strategy was that the Democrat-controlled House has created this committee and is now going after our president. Um, what, that's what uh, that would be. The, that was the claim of the Republicans, and people, Republican supporters, tied into that argument very well. Um, they many people agreed with that idea, and they 
kind of distrusted the committee's work, if you will. Um, they did not think that the uh, that the committee was fair or was conducting a you know a fair investigation. That's for you to decide. Um, but with the reports that I've seen, with the reports that I've uh, and with the hearings that I've heard myself, the evidence that they have presented has been interesting. Um, I'll say it's been interesting to look at um, because obviously this isn't something we've actually seen before. And so what I would say is we have to look at this as a new phenomenon. And as we know in politics, things are always changing. There's always new stuff. So this is one of those things where we have to look at it with a new lens and we have to understand what this committee is trying to do. And we have to take off the partisan lens for a second to understand the intention of their goal. And maybe their goal is to be partisan. But the way I'm looking at it right now is that they are conducting the investigation that they that they want to conduct. But former... Uh, Former President Donald Trump obviously has come out in blatant opposition to the work of the committee, and he has consistently criticized the committee for um, for for the hearings they conducted as a political sham, and that's what mainly the MAGA Republican part, uh, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. That's been that those have been their main talking points. Um, but yeah, the committee did conclude. I think their last hearing. In July, which was about President Trump and the 187 minutes during the Capitol riot when there was no communication from the White House. Um, and they haven't held any hearings since. But they plan on holding more of these hearings in the future. I believe this month they are looking at a date for um, a primetime hearing, I believe. But we'll keep you updated on that. Now, the war in Ukraine has been shifting since the last time we spoke. When we went on break, there was essentially a stalemate between Russia and Ukraine where there wasn't a lot of fighting from either side that was actually resulting in any tangible benefit for either side. But when you looked at it with a greater lens, when you looked at it from a, great, uh, from a greater length of time, you would see that this stalemate was more of a testament to Ukraine's resolve, I feel, because of the fact that they managed to hold an army as big as Russia back from entering too far into its borders. It's an accomplishment, I must say, because uh, what, because in the past few weeks, Ukraine has been, I guess it should be said that Ukraine is making huge gains, um, prompting a lot of people to say that Russia has essentially lost this war as, or has failed at its invasion. It's not turning out at all the way they wanted it to. And instead, what we see is them desperately trying to turn the tables. And when I say them, I specifically only mean Vladimir Putin. Um, for example, and an example of these of this desperation is recent referendums, which are votes um, held by popular vote, which were held in four major Ukrainian regions that have large that have large Russian presences. And these votes were on whether or not Russia should annex these territories. Now, Russia claims that these are fair and the residents get to vote on it, but much of the world has called it out for what they see it as, which is a sham, and right out of their playbook. It's similar to what they've done in other regions. So this isn't a new thing for the international community, but I think what Putin, the president of Russia, tried to do 
this simultaneously with is the mobilization of 300,000 of his reserve troops in an effort to offset the losses that his army has experienced in this invasion. In addition to that, um, he's gotten more um, in a very aggressive mood. Putin is also using a lot more aggressive rhetoric against the West and is offering some very it's some very dark warnings to countries that are supporting Ukraine. He's repeatedly tried to use nuclear weapons as a threat and has tried to leverage his country's capabilities when it comes to asserting what he wants. And I think what that done is it stowed a lot of tension. Um, and I think when we left, there was a bit of a pause in that because people still were like, maybe things might change. Maybe, maybe Russia might go in. Maybe Ukraine might just do something. So th- he was quiet. But in recent weeks, Putin has become a lot more vocal um, in, in his criticism of the West for their support of Ukraine. And he's become more forceful in this invasion because the perception right now is that he le- is losing. Because Russia had planned on taking over all of Ukraine in just a matter of a few days. And I remember we were all watching very closely for those first few weeks, just preparing for the worst. But then Russia kept falling and falling and falling when in its assault. We're now in month eight, I think, of this war. And Putin is now, is now being forced to increase the size of his um, army in Ukraine and is only getting more aggressive and as many people, many diplomats are saying, he's being cornered. And in my view, he is becoming desperate. Um, and it's a desperate attempt to get attention, which, and which, he, which he isn't getting. And he's trying to pursue new means to get what he wants by garnering our attention. This is a very rapidly unfolding situation and things change nearly every day. So we're going to still continue to monitor the situation as we have been since February. Then lastly, our final big story from this summer is Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort being raided by the FBI. When I first heard about this, my first thought was not, wow, they went after a former president. My first thought was, how on earth do you end up in a situation like this? Because look... Donald Trump is a former president of the United States, first and foremost. So these types of raids, this this raid really, what we saw is unprecedented. You don't see this happen ever. But then you add on the layer of this being Donald Trump, and then you notice this complexity being added to this issue. And what I mean is that he is so polarizing. We are adding this polarizing layer onto this issue Anything that happens to him or anything he does instantly commands attention from anyone. So when this latest attention getter was the FBI raiding his home, a lot of people paid attention. The reason I ask how on earth did we end up in this situation is for both sides of this. For Donald Trump's side, it's what did you have to do that made it necessary for the FBI to come raid your home? For the government, I ask, is it really the smartest idea to conduct a raid like this on a former president, let alone someone this controversial? For the record, I must say that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, was not actually informed of the raid before it happened. He didn't know it was happening, as it usually is, um, in the executive uh, branch between the Department of Justice and the White House. 
So what the FBI found in this raid was that President Trump had taken various classified documents with him after he left the White House in 2021. Some of these classified documents had the highest security clearance. Uh, and, and we have leveled security clearance in our um, in the government. So what the documents that Donald Trump had had this highest security clearance associated with them. So a very select group of people ever got to see them or are allowed to see them even right now. Now, it makes sense why this is a concern, because you're not supposed to have classified documents if you're not making decisions about that information. There's a risk of it getting into the wrong hands. There's all sorts of concerns that warrant this thought. Regardless of your views, this raid has resulted in a, in a huge fight, if you will, between Trump and Biden's Department of Justice over the release of the warrant and over the actual way the raid was conducted to whether or not that docu- the documents that he had actually posed an issue. This matter, from the politics perspective, has sparked outrage with Republicans, specifically MAGA Republicans, who are trying to call this political persecution, and that's a claim that I have actually heard people say. It's not that I'm, it's not that, really, but I'm sure these comments probably give an idea of how hot of an issue this is. For right now, though, this issue is hovering in the courts, but when anything interesting which eventually will occur. Uh, Whenever that happens, we will bring you the latest on, on this very interesting story. All right, those were three of the biggest stories from the summer. When we come back, we'll get into midterm watch and talk about the situation of the midterms, top issues, some key races to watch, and who's winning. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this short, short break. All right, we're back from our break. Now, we just talked about the three biggest stories from the summer. Now, the reason I say these were the three biggest stories was because these top three news stories have played a big part in the buildup to this year's midterms. They have shaped a lot of the electorate's mindset, and a lot of people in D.C. have also been playing paying very close attention to these three stories, which is why it's so important that we understand them, and that's in order to then understand the psyche and the thought process behind what it is that or how it is that midterms are going to be shaping up this year. Now, as a reminder, this year's midterms will be on Tuesday, November 8th. So mark your calendars. And without any further ado, let's get into our first midterm watch. So I want this segment of the show for the next five weeks before the midterms to be your guide into American politics right now at the height of our election season. And so let's understand the landscape of this election before we start discussing some more races and the more nitty gritty of it. So this year, the biggest races are going to be control of Congress and various statewide elected offices, as is the case every midterm election year. Currently, the House of Representatives, which is the Democrats' most vulnerable possession, is composed of 220 Democrats to 212 Republicans. And in the Senate, which is a little more safe, Democrats hold it 50 to 50 with Vice President Kamala Harris there to break the tie. Control of Congress following this year's midterm elections are going to be pivotal in the Democrats' aspirations for the remainder of President Biden's first term. 
their successes with the control with control of Congress is directly going to impact President Biden's reelection chances, chances, which at this time seem pretty uncertain or too early to call. And when I say uncertain, I mean unknown. Like we don't actually know what Joe Biden is thinking right now about whether or not he wants to run for re-election. And I think he's going to base a lot of that decision if he's still unsure about it. I think he's going to base much of his decision over the results from the midterms because the midterms are generally a great showing of how your party is going to do and is also kind of a referendum of sorts or kind of a national approval rating check of the president because it's the president president's party right now that's in power. I remember in 2018, Republicans lost the House of Representatives by a huge number. And it was mainly because it was a huge rejection of Donald Trump, at least at the time. That's why they called it a blue wave year. Because it was like a blue wave had just shot over all of the country. And we uh, Democrats ended up winning, I think, 42 seats. This year, the House is expected to go to Republicans by a similar, if not greater, margin. Um, at least during the summer when we were talking, because of issues like inflation, the war in, war in Ukraine, um, among other things, uh, Joe Biden, our Democrats' chances in the House seemed a lot more bleak and so that's why that was sprouting, sprouting a lot of concern. The House is the real issue right now for Democrats, and it's their biggest challenge. Winning those House seats is going to be pivotal in maintaining their control. And yes, in recent weeks, Republicans have lost the momentum that they had in the summer. But that still doesn't mean that they're not the favorites to win. They are still in the lead right now to win control of the House of Representatives, which could entail all sorts of things, but biggest of all might be a flop of the Biden agenda for the to last two years of his first term. The issue for Democrats is that they have been working with such a narrow majority right now. The reason they don't have a lot of huge victories to brag about to voters is because they have such a narrow majority. And so because they have such a narrow majority, every vote counts like crazy. Like there cannot be anyone defecting from big party votes, insert Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. Because of this narrow grasp of power, Democrats have struggled to roll out their policy initiatives and the things they have been successful have that the things that they've wanted to say they would be successful at when running have been pretty toned down to what President Biden had compared to what President Biden had promised. So their goal to initially was initially at least to expand that majority. But now I guess it's more about protecting and holding on to whatever they can. On the other side of the equation, Republicans have been out of power for almost two years. Now that's actually a pretty short amount of time when you look at uh, politics on the grand scale. But for nearly six years preceding 2020, they did have some or complete control of Congress. And they made good use of their majority. They got a lot of huge um, huge policies passed. They undermined the Obama agenda. They helped pre President Trump's agenda. So that was, however, during the transition of their party from the old 2000s Republican Party to the new MAGA Republican Party. And there's a stark difference between the two. If Republicans win control of either House or maybe both this November, it'll be the first time that they have 
helped run the government without Donald Trump literally steering everything they do. This time, it's going to be them in a non-Trump white, working with a non-Trump White House, a Democrat white, White House, independent of Trump policies. Although, yes, of course, Trump has his influence over the party. But I think the distinction here is now with that, if the House, I'm, I'm going to say the House because that's more likely to go. If the House goes red, that will be, that'll be the first example of Trump, or at least the Trump wing of the party, really trying to resist President Biden's agenda. Republicans are more likely to win the House. And so in that event, Kevin McCarthy will become the speaker the first Trump-aligned speaker of the House. Because if you will recall, Paul Ryan was the last Republican speaker, and he wasn't very pro-Trump. So this will be an interesting time. And especially with leadership in the Republican Party right now, it's been very confusing for people who aren't necessarily as much in favor or as supportive of Donald Trump. It's um, It's an interesting predicament for them. I think back to Liz Cheney, who was ousted from her number three role at, in the House Republican Conference. She was touted to be speaker one day, but then one thing against Donald Trump, and they basically cut her out of the party. So if Republicans win control of the House, it's going to be interesting to see how Kevin McCarthy runs his party, how he runs his conference in the House. All right. So for this segment, every week I'm going to make my prediction. Who now? You know who do I think is going to win? What what are the major issues running the discussion, et cetera, et cetera. Now for my predictions, they have stayed the same for the most part. I remember when I left for the season finale, it was a little more stark for the Democrats. But I think since the Dobbs decision, which ruled abortion illegal in the United States, more info on that on the ishanashow.com, Democrats have very much rebounded. Like, for example, in very Republican Kansas, voters voted to protect abortion. Um, It was a referendum there, too, where it was unexpected in a Republican state like Kansas for them to actually vote to protect um, abortion, I think, in their constitution. I believe that was the, the question. They ended up protecting, voting to protect it, which was a huge upset for pro-choice groups. Or, or Mary Peltola in Ruby Red, Alaska, who won her uh, election, to, a special election to the House, defying a lot of expectations and beating big Alaskan Republican names who have won statewide before, like Sarah Palin. Now, I won't say that Peltola won her election because of abortion being such a major part of the headlines, but at the time, the sentiment was definitely more in favor of Democrats because of the Dobbs decision and the controversy around it. All right. Now let's talk about some races that I'm looking at. We'll go more in depth into these stories in the days and weeks to come to talk about my reasoning, my thoughts, and more. But in the best interest of time, I'll give you a Cliff Notes version of one that are two races that I'm watching. So those two races that I'm watching right now very closely are the governor's races in Pennsylvania and Arizona. These two races are... Honestly, the ultimate battle over the 2020 election. As most of you know, a lot of Trump supporters question the outcome of the 2020 election and question the fairness of the results and whether or not President Biden had actually won. 
Now, here on the Ishan S show, and we go with the numbers and the evidence, and right now, and that evidence and those numbers point to the fact that President Biden did, in fact, win the election. But many Trump supporters do deny that, and they do question that. Now, this group of people, their popularity, it has skyrocketed within the GOP because so many of them are taking a more prominent stage. They have been empowered by President Trump. Um, and so many of them are now running on, on, on election denial platforms. I think there was a stat out there from NPR maybe um, which said that about one-third of all Republican candidates in this year's midterm cycle are, ele- are running on an election denial platform. And so many of these people are running for Secretary of State offices, governor's races, Senate, um, which makes you think a lot more about the 2024 election and what this election denial sentiment might be then. Because the 2022 election, the results from here are definitely going to have an impact on the 2024 election if election denial and election fraud and these types of things end up in the discussion. That's what we're seeing in Arizona and Pennsylvania for their races for governor. In Arizona, you have Republican Carrie Lake up against Democrat Katie Hobbs. Um, And in Pennsylvania, you have Doug Mastriano, the Republican, up against Democrat Josh Shapiro. These two elections have commanded national attention, not really for their Democrat um, factor, uh, candidates, excuse me, but a lot more for their Republican candidates because the Republican candidates have run on a huge MAGA, um, you know, election 2020 election was a fraud, that type of uh, rhetoric. And that's commanded a lot of national attention. And that's resulted in a lot of money coming in the way of these races on both sides. A lot of both of these candidates and both of these races are getting loads of money um, and a lot of press attention. So it's important for us to understand the candidates, what they stand for, and just merely why they matter so much. Because on November 9th, two of these people will be the governor-elect of their home states. That was this week's Midterm Watch. Join us again next week where I will talk about the biggest headlines and some more races and give you analysis on the 2022 midterms. Thanks for joining us. And so that does it for us here today at the Ishan S. Show. If you liked my commentary, then go ahead and follow at Ishan S. Show on Twitter and at the Ishan S. Show on Instagram for breaking news posts and updates about the show. If you want to learn more about political stories, then check out my political news blog on the Show.com and enter in your email to subscribe and just check out the Show.com. And do us a favor and share this episode and all other Ishan S. Show content with your friends and family. It is the best way for this show to grow and get more people listening to it. And it helps out so much. Thanks again for all your support. And I'll see you guys soon. Bye.